Hello and welcome to Wellbeings. I'm your host, Tyler White, and today's episode is brought to you by Jackson White, a full-service law firm serving the state of Arizona. Our episode today is also brought to you by Birdie Scrubs, which is no doubt the most comfortable scrubs on the entire planet. We have a great episode today. Christopher Laxton is our guest, and he is the executive director for AMDA. Now, AMDA is an acronym for, get this, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Mr. Laxton is going to explain to us how we get from the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine to AMDA, but more importantly, and definitely more intriguingly, Mr. Laxton is going to talk to us about the COVID-19 vaccine. Now, there's a lot of information out there, and there's a lot of disinformation out there, and Mr. Laxton is going to take us through the weeds and bring us to a point where we understand all the ins and outs surrounding the vaccine. So if you only go to one place to get your news on the vaccine, you've come to it. I learned more in my hour with Mr. Laxton than I've learned over the course of the past month on all my news outlets. So buckle up, like I often say, because this is a great episode and you are no doubt going to learn a lot here with Mr. Laxton. Hello and welcome to Wellbeings. I'm your host, Tyler White, and today we are very lucky to have Christopher Laxton with us. Christopher, um, there are a lot of different ways to introduce you. Um, I've viewed your, your LinkedIn profile. We've had a few conversations via email, um, yep. and so I don't want to butcher the introduction. <laughs> How would you introduce yourself? Let's, let's put it that way. Yeah, well, thanks, Tyler, and I appreciate you having me on today. I'm the executive director. I serve as the chief staff officer of a, a medical society that serves post-acute and long-term care. Our name is AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. And our members are um, approximately 5,000 uh, physician medical directors, attending physicians, and advanced clinical staff, nurse practitioners, PAs, et cetera. Fascinating, fascinating. So how does one become a member of what we call it AMDA? Is that is that how you refer to the organization, AMDA? AMDA is, AMDA is historically what we're called, which is why the acronym is still in our name, yes. Okay. And and how does one become a member of AMDA? AMDA? Yeah, we, um, we're open to really anyone with a clinical practice or even just a, a strong interest in post-acute long-term care. Uh, voting membership is restricted to licensed physicians, nurse practitioners, and, and uh, PAs. But uh, we have participation from RNs, from nursing home administrators, from pharmacists, uh, social workers, dietitians, really anyone who's on the interdisciplinary team uh, within a nursing home or an assisted living building or really any of the sectors of the settings of care that uh, serve this population. I see. Now, I know I'm familiar with the term, but why don't we define it for some of our listeners who might not know what uh, the term post-acute means? Yeah, long-term care and post-acute care are really um, two different ways of addressing a very similar population. Post-acute generally <clears throat> refers to people who have, say, broken a hip or come in <clears throat> to the hospital for a knee replacement. Uh, due to you know a, a knee becoming too arthritic to function well, uh, and then they need rehab, so they they go to a nursing home <clears throat> for their rehabilitation, 
um, and often are then discharged home. They're what's uh, what are sometimes called short stay uh, patients, but they're not, they're not always. Sometimes these are folks who really can't be maintained at home, even post-surgery. And so that is, uh, they'll end up making their home in a nursing facility or an assisted living building. Um, <clears throat> so essentially long-term care uh, really refers to people who are going to have moved into the facility or the community or you know the campus for the rest of their lives. And it's usually, um, you know, 24 months uh, before they pass. Uh, these are folks who are in their 80s um, on average, and they have multiple conditions that are, you know, chronic conditions that require management. Uh, they may be, you know, in a, a good deal of functional needs. In other words, getting, you know, getting their medicines uh, at the right time, uh, you know, keeping from declining. So for things like exercise programs, making sure they eat well, uh, getting to the toilet and back. Some of these are you know, really important sort of life, what are called, you know, uh, uh, daily activities of daily living or ADLs. Mm -hmm. This is kind of what um, a lot of nursing home uh, residents uh, need help with. And that's, that's really where the skilled nursing facility comes from. I see. You made a point there that I, I think is, oftentimes overlooked you you said that uh, this the facilities become the residents home um and yes. and i think through that lens uh, we're able to see see the whole situation with a bit more compassion it's uh it's so much more than um you know i'm going mm -hmm. to get treatment and then and then i'm going home it's a, it's a mm -hmm. move right they're they're, yes, they're moving home uh, yeah, these these are people's homes. They're called nursing homes for that reason. Um, you know, often you know they look and feel like little hospitals, and certainly the degree to which the resident population needs a lot of help, uh, they sometimes um, you know the needs are are essentially hospital level needs. And you know, we're not even talking yet about you know the global pandemic here. Uh, but they are there. They, these are people's homes. They, uh, and they, you know, they're treated as such, they're regulated as such. And, um, you know, the folks who work in these facilities really understand that uh, they're not, you know, taking care of people so they can get better and leave. These are folks who, who will spend the rest of their days uh, in these uh, communities and, uh, and uh, you know, really the nursing home staff become part of their family. Yeah. And I, I think that semantics plays such a huge part in this. Um, a, a nursing home or, or, or going home rather sounds so much more welcoming than I'm, I'm moving to a facility. Facility just seems, granted that might be what it is, but it seems a little more clinical. Um, yeah, no, that's exactly right, Tyler. In fact, the, uh, the assisted living world, which is really where people who need a little bit less um, help with uh, some of the medical care they need, but they do need some assistance. Uh, they they refuse to call themselves facilities. They're assisted living communities, and uh, you know the 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 rooms where the residents live are called apartments or units, just like in a in a regular apartment or condo. And uh, you know they're very you know fiercely protective of that. Um, mostly, I think, because of the degree to which you know the the resident population in a nursing home has gotten a good deal sicker and, and, you know, more frail, more medically complex. And so the treatment that's required for them often looks like a small hospital. 
Mm-hmm. They don't want to. They don't want to. You know, look like that. They don't want to have people be afraid that they're sort of moving into a hospital for the rest of their lives. And I can understand why. Although, man, what a waste of a, a good acronym. Uh, it could be ALF, but instead it's assisted living community, and we've there's no acronym for that. When I well, <laughs> actually, some states do still call them ALFs, which is funny, but uh, they're moving away from it, and I think rightly so. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and speaking of acronyms, why is AMDA AMDA? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's historical. Uh, we're a small medical society. We were formed 40 th- some years ago uh, to really standardize the role of a, of a medical director. And so when we were founded, our name was the American Medical Directors Association or AMDA. Um, and uh, so everybody called us AMDA up until <clears throat> we changed our name some eight or nine years ago to really reflect kind of, you know, the full scope of what our members do, uh, which is post-acute long-term care medicine. And, uh, uh, and also who our members are while the bulk of our members are nursing home medical directors. Many of those medical directors are also attending physicians. They do clinical care in addition to medical oversight. Uh, and we have, um, you know, a number of growing number of nurse practitioners who work exclusively in nursing homes within our membership. And um, so we needed to, you know, to sort of broaden that out. But those of us, those who knew us as AMDA wanted to continue to know us as AMDA. And so we retained that uh, acronym at the front of our long name, which just made a long name even longer. <laughs> Probably wise. Nonetheless, uh, it, it, uh, branding, branding is challenging, and if you already had a good brand going, um, it probably made sense to keep it. Um, you mentioned that, exactly. th- that uh, th- there's this dual role of medical director slash uh, attending physician. Uh, is that more in uh, rural areas, would you say, or is, uh, is that all across the board? Well, it's across the board, but you brought up rural areas, which is a really good point, Tyler. I mean, often um, rural areas won't have enough physicians, period. They just, uh, you know, there's a physician shortage. And and so often the medical director of a rural nursing home is the only doc in town. And so that person is also providing clinical care. But I think it's really important to recognize, uh, you know, the very distinct roles. Uh, when a when a physician is acting as a medical director, they are a consultant to the facility. They're being paid by the facility to provide um, regulatory required uh, oversight, um, policy work, mm-hmm. uh, quality improvement work, uh, staff education, um, and uh, medical staff leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they are not paid to do clinical care. When they do clinical care as an attending physician, and sometimes the only attending physician, they are reimbursed by Medicare or Medicaid or or a private health plan, uh, and not by the facility. So, and and of course, those are you know, because it's the same person, it's often considered it's, it's the same thing, but it's not at all the same thing. Engaged medical direction is a leadership role. It's critically important. Um, and it's not uh, in any degree the same thing as an attending physician role. Yeah, two very different hats. Are there ever conflicts of interest that arise when we have uh, one person wearing two hats like that? Well, uh, 
Yeah, yes, that's kind of the, the tightrope that a lot of rural medical directors have to walk if they're also the only attending physician, because one of the roles of a medical director is to, of course, supervise the medical staff. So they're sort of supervising themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's important, though, to, to recognize that the, you know, the commitment that a an attending physician makes and a medical director, for that matter, is to the patient. So, the, you know, the patient's priorities come first. Um, they're getting paid by different sources, but in both cases, they're um, sort of ethically as well as in terms of their own regulatory requirements um, bound to serve the patient's interests above all. Sure. I can see that uh, regardless of the hat, um, yep. if they're doing their jobs well, uh, either job, both jobs will inure to the patient's benefit. Exactly. Um, so. Real quickly, what what was the genesis of AMDA? How did what was the set of circumstances from which AMDA was born? Yeah, it's an interesting history. Um, you're probably too young to remember what nursing homes were like in the '50s and '60s, but they weren't good. They weren't nice places. Um, <clears throat> they were often places where el- our elders were warehoused. Um, often places where they suffered uh, neglect and abuse and um, <clears throat> there was just not a good a good environment of care, um, you know, in the nursing home environment. And you know, they really came out of the poorhouse environment. This is uh, sort of the early history of nursing homes were sort of almshouses, folks who couldn't afford any place else to go, and so that's that's where they ended up. And you know, the care environment there was was just not good. Um, so back in the day, some, you know, early consumer heroes like Maggie Kuhn and Elma Holder, uh, started a, a Grey Panthers movement. The Grey Panthers were a consumer movement to improve the care, uh, of our elders in the United States. And, um, there, that, that was a, a very active and very mobile, uh, movement of people to improve nursing home care. And it resulted in, um, 1987 in a comprehensive, a comprehensive nursing home reform law that was uh, folded into the Omnibus Reconciliation Act. So it's known as OBRA 87. OBRA 87 brought in a framework of regulatory requirements that all nursing homes had to meet, including that every Medicare certified nursing home had to have a physician medical director. It's the first time uh, that was uh, made a broad requirement. Interesting. Um, uh, the role of medical director uh, was not a defined one at that point. It was not standardized. Um, and so our founding members uh, or group of physicians who served nursing homes as medical directors uh, decided that uh, they needed to standardize the role, define its uh, domains of care, domains of knowledge, and then start training uh, medical directors uh, along that. So we built a curriculum. Um, the uh, the OBRA law uh, sort of took our membership from about 500 uh, sort of uh, you know worthy founders up to up to our current 5,000 very quickly, and so there were a lot of people who needed to be trained, a lot of people who needed to understand what this role was, um, and uh, <clears throat> so the the core curriculum, as we call it, <clears throat> core curriculum for medical direction, was born, and uh, and we started training medical directors. Um, at that point, uh, we decided it was important to fi- to have a credentialing process as well uh, for those who had been through the training. And so we formed a, a separate a credentialing board, the, now called the American Board of Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. 
And, uh, and that board provides a credential, the CMD or certified medical director credential okay. uh, to a medical director. So those who go through the training are eligible to be uh, CMD certified. Not all medical directors do. Um, and because it is voluntary, um, not all medical directors are trained. Now, we have seen a stark difference between nursing homes, especially here in this during this pandemic, nursing homes that have trained, certified, and engaged medical directors in terms of their patient outcomes uh, than those homes that do not. Well, uh, so sure. to us, it's a, it's a very important role, not one that can be sort of taken lightly and, and certainly not one uh, that uh, that you know how to do out of medical school. Sure. Yeah, that uh, that that reminds me of the dilemma. Well, probably the dilemma with most uh, professional occupations is that you you spend so much time in school learning how to do the thing, whatever that thing might be, and then you get out of school and you know how to do the thing, but you don't know how to you don't know how to implement it and and you don't mm-hmm. know how you don't know how to market, you don't know how to implement, you don't know how to uh, you don't know the culture of that particular uh, profession, um, and, and maybe I'm making a sweeping uh, generalization, but certainly that was the case with law school. Um, sure. I knew how to study coming out of law school, uh, yep. but I didn't know the first <laughs> thing about being a lawyer. Yeah, isn't that interesting? It is, uh, it is somewhat similar. Um, and when you think about it, physicians are trained to cure, right? They're trained to fix problems through interventions, either medical or surgical, and, uh, and then send people home um, you know, to heal and recover. Uh, but nursing home care is very, very different. Yeah. For one thing, there's not, there's not a, single, a single condition that you're addressing. Uh, our nursing home residents are, have multiple comorbid conditions, diabetes, uh, heart disease, congestive heart failure, pulmonary issues, mm-hmm. um, you know, chronic arthritic uh, conditions, and, and all of them uh, you know, interact together in what's called a geriatric syndrome. And so if a physician doesn't understand that when a, when a patient is suffering in, from a particular condition, that it could be multiple uh, reasons for it, uh, that physician is likely to you know, prescribe the wrong intervention or you know, put a drug on uh, you know, an already large drug regimen uh, that uh, may interact poorly with other drugs. And I, I haven't even mentioned you know, the, the, what's called polypharmacy in, in the nursing home care, which is... Uh, really addresses the large number of medications most nursing home uh, residents are on, uh, sometimes 15, 18, 20 different meds, wow. um, <clears throat> which, you know, imagine not, not only the sort of impact on a, a regular healthy adult of taking 20 different medications, but on a, a medically frail and complex uh, older adult uh, yeah. for whom those interactions may have never been tested in a, in a trial or understood in terms of the uh, of the dosing requirements. So, you know, complex medication management, complex condition management, all of these things are, you know, an important piece of what the, what the clinical care component of a, of a nursing home requires of a doctor. When you then get into the medical oversight, you have to recognize that nursing homes are nothing like hospitals. They're not staffed in any way the, the same way. Uh, there are often not even an RN uh, 24-7 in the buildings. Uh, th- th- they may be agency nurses coming in and out, uh, but not permanent staff. Uh, attending physicians don't live on site. Uh, they, they round uh, occasionally and when needed. 
Um, there isn't a, a lab uh, often on site. There's not a pharmacy on site. There's no imaging. Wow. Um, uh, so, you know, all of these services, which are now extremely important to the uh, to the good operation of a nursing home, all are contracted out. Uh, and we often find hospital physicians discharging their patients to a nursing home thinking, oh, I think, you know, I'll order this test or that test, or we need to get a, you know, a, 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 some imaging done or, you know, blood work, et cetera. And, uh, you know, the nursing home's got to, to struggle to, to, to find those services and make them available uh, to the resident. And frankly, they may not even be necessary because we, we find that the first thing a, a, an engaged medical director or trained post-acute long-term care physician does is cancel most of the medications on the list, <laughs> uh, take them off. And then, and then also really sort of look to see what impact all those medications have on, you know, the patient's list of conditions. They may, they may have delirium coming out of the hospital because they're in a certain kind of shock from the, all the different meds they're on. And once you take the meds away, that delirium may clear up. Um, you know, so these, are, they may have, they may have a problem falling. Uh, falls are a, a huge problem in nursing homes. And, you know, you can imagine a frail 90 year old is likely to fall if they're not helped, but often those falls are also called by caused yeah. by medication interactions. It makes people dizzy or lightheaded, or, you know, they have that, uh, um, uh, hypostatic, blood pressure issue when they stand up quickly, you get a little dizzy or lightheaded. Mm -hmm. That's, that's even more of a, of a problem with the elderly. And so you just have to be aware of the degree to which as a physician, uh, it, it's not enough to just get out of medical school and start taking care of, um, you know, the, the nursing home population It requires special attention. Um, and, uh, and even geriatric training, which is of course, very helpful for this population often doesn't address the nursing home. It's adult geriatrics in the pop, in the, in the community, the specialty um, so, within the specialty. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, uh, and I think again, uh, if you can, if you can have nursing homes that are, uh, supported by trained and engaged medical directors and, and trained physicians, uh, nurse practitioners who really understand <clears throat> the medical requirements as well as the facility uh, constraints, um, then I think you've got a, a, a formula for very good care. Uh, but that's not the way, I think that's not the way a lot of consumers think about nursing homes. No, no. You, you mentioned a couple of things uh, that I want to touch on. First, it sounds like um, step one is subtraction, not addition, when we're, when we're bringing residents into the, into the nursing homes, at, at least in, a, at least in a, uh, an atmosphere where everybody's had the proper training, um, uh, if that makes any sense. It seems like yeah. taking yeah. things away it might, might have better outcomes than just throwing more, uh, more yes. Band-Aids on the situation. Yes. Um, another thing, um, the number is staggering, 20 medications that really illuminates um, medication management and mismanagement. Uh, mm -hmm. I know that that's a big issue that many of my clients face and mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and I, I, I take a few, I mean, I take fish oil in the morning and I mm -hmm. just supplements really. And, sure. and I find myself missing doses of supplements. Now, mm -hmm. if I'm 90 and I have 20 medications, um, you, you, you can bet that I'm going to be missing medication and, and the yeah. impacts be much more deleterious 
um, than missing a fish oil dose, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, no, you're right. And, and what's more, <clears throat> you know, our nursing home population, actually across the entire post-acute long-term care spectrum, some 70% of those who live or visit um, post-acute long-term care settings have some form of cognitive decline. Some of it may be very mild, uh, uh, but it's all the way up to full-blown Alzheimer's disease or other dementias. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so you, you compound the difficulty with condition management, medication management, symptom management uh, with a, a population that has a, a large percentage of, of which have some are living with some form of cognitive decline. Um, and it becomes a very, very challenging, uh, medically challenging situation. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, and, and another another point I wanted to raise, it's it is um, it's amazing how long these stigmas last. Um, I have I have clients who talk to me about state run homes or uh, and state homes and, yeah. and various yeah. various spins off of that. And, mm -hmm. and we don't have that in, in Arizona. And, and as you talk about um, what it was like in the 50s and 60s, um, this is this is the milieu to which they're referring these uh, a place you wouldn't want to send mom or dad. And, and that's, yeah. that's changed and probably in no large part um, due to AMDA, I mean, and, and organizations like AMDA. Certainly organizations like ours. Um, yeah, the state homes or county homes more, more usually uh, are sort of the last vestige of the, uh, of the early, um, you know, essentially uh, nursing homes for the poor. Mm -hmm. They're still largely, you know, almost exclusively Medicaid um, or supported and Medicaid does not support the costs anymore of a, uh, you know, a, a place. And so many of them are being closed. In fact, I, uh, I for a while I was running a, uh, a, the affiliate of the leading age organization, which is the nonprofit side of nursing homes in Illinois. And <clears throat> we only had one, one county home left running and it, uh, it closed its doors uh, during my tenure there simply because they didn't have enough support to, uh, to keep it open. Uh, that's, so that is a, uh, that is a, uh, a, a piece of, of history that's no longer with us. And it's probably a good thing in the end. Uh, nursing, homes, nursing homes needed to become, you know, better places for everyone to be. And, um, and you know, in, in large degree, they have. Sure. Uh, I mean, your, your financial status should not be uh, the litmus test for the quality of care you're receiving. Um, if Medicaid's out there and there are strict requirements to which you must adhere to qualify for Medicaid, then let's qualify for Medicaid and give everybody who qualifies for Medicaid the same treatment. Let's not say because you're poor, we'll put you in a county home. And thank goodness we, we don't do that. And so, um, I know I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, obviously. Yeah. Well, and, and I hear I hear some passion in your voice as well here, Tyler. I think this is probably an issue that you spent a good deal of your time on as well. You know, I think the biggest problem with Medicaid is that it's inadequate to cover the costs of care uh, for most elders. And, and their, you know, the rates, as you know, are highly variable across the country, state to state. Um, in the state of Illinois, where I uh, spent most of my time um, early days here, 
uh, it's the second lowest Medicaid rate of any place in the nation. Uh, I think second only to Texas. I don't think that's changed. And it's uh, those 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 reimbursement rates for a day of care only covered about maybe 60% of the actual costs. Um, so, you know, that's obviously unsustainable um, and really why a lot of the county homes had to close and, and really why nursing homes that are very Medicaid dependent have to do a lot of fundraising and philanthropy and, and or find other, you know, sort of what they call case mix uh, patients to support, to support their costs. It, it, what we're really talking about here, Tyler, is, a, is sort of a fundamental mismatch between the way we finance the care for the elderly and the needs that the, that the elderly population have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it, it's fascinating to see that the, the number of, of skilled nursing facilities are well, it's not, it's maybe it's not interesting. It's, it should be obvious, but the number of skilled nursing facilities in the state is directly tied to the reimbursement rate. I mean, if you're going to, if you're going to start a business in a state, um, why start one in the state that reimburses the lowest? Yes, that's, um, that is a good point. And, and so, uh, this is where I think the, uh, uh, a distinction between a, <clears throat> a for-profit home and a non-profit home <clears throat> comes in because, of course, for-profit homes um, have owners <clears throat> and they may have, uh, um, you know, shareholders and uh, those shareholders need to uh, be paid and they are generally paid before, uh, you know, uh, additional costs are being, are, you know, can be invested in the care of the patients under their under their roofs whereas nonprofits of course don't have owners mm-hmm. um, they are public interest organizations um, you know by charter uh, and statute and and they do need to um, you know therefore they you know they they can make I think more easily make investments in uh, their infrastructure their staff their training and so forth um, sure uh, yeah, and- for the care of the patient. And you were involved with Leading Age in Illinois, I heard you say? Yep, I was their CEO for three and a half years before moving to AMDA. Oh, good for you. Well, um, man, there, there are so many points that I could, uh, I could talk about. Um, so much of what you said intrigues me already. Um, but I, I do want to talk about the vaccine and AMDA's, yes. AMDA's uh, suggestions in regards to the the vaccine um mm-hmm. and and so so you've you've produced or amda has has produced um some suggestive strategies and um questions and answers about the mm-hmm. covid 19 vaccine so why don't we start by um uh, let's Let's talk. Let's talk about the the discussion that led to AMDA saying, "Okay, let's let's put this out uh, standardized." Yeah, yeah. Well, um, this is a uh, you know this vaccine is um, you know really that together with the therapeutics that are being distributed now, uh, you know, the most um, powerful and efficient way that we can bring this global pandemic to a close. Uh, So it's critically important that uh, the vaccine is understood, that it's well accepted, and that it is administered widely. We need 70% of the population uh, to be, uh, to achieve immunity 
to reach what's called herd immunity. And that is right. essentially the point at which we can say this public health emergency can, can now be considered over. Is that a basic metric for herd immunity at large? Regardless? It is. Okay. Okay. It is. Now, again, um, I think for highly virulent diseases like Ebola, for example, uh, herd immunity you know, is kind of, there is no cure, there's no vaccine for Ebola. So it's a non-issue. But for, for things like seasonal flu, uh, certainly for COVID, um, uh, you know, as, as dangerous as COVID is, uh, we have a vaccine now to protect you against it. We have therapeutics in the form of monoclonal antibodies. Uh, that can prevent uh, a progression of the disease and prevent hospitalization. So, you know, we have, we have a, uh, a, an approach to this now that we didn't have before, and uh, that is our quickest path to reaching herd immunity in the end of the pandemic. Are you confident so, in that path? Given that it's, it's I mean, relatively speaking, we, we've, we've come to this point very quickly. Um, yep. Um, so, right. So you had asked, why did we think it was important to develop the, uh, our toolkit? Um, so that's the first answer is because, yeah. you're right, it's because we really needed to have people understand how important the vaccine was in bringing this to a close. But the second was, you know, it is, as you say, a, a quickly developed vaccine, a relatively new vaccine technology. It's not new in chemistry. Uh, or drug development because it's been used for cancer um, uh, for you know a number of years, 15 years of, of experience with cancer. Uh, but it has not been applied to a vaccine preventable disease uh, up until now. It was actually in development for flu uh, well before this pandemic came along and the, and the drug manufacturers had switched quickly to change the pathogen from influenza to COVID-19. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, but people don't know that. They see, what they see is it's a new vaccine. It's, a, it's, it's got a new technology. It has something to do with DNA. And um, so yeah. we heard uh, a lot of hesitation uh, among both residents and staff about this vaccine. And so it was very important to us uh, to put out a toolkit that answered some of the questions that we were hearing. So that's really the genesis of why we why we did our toolkit. Um, Makes a lot I'm, of sense I'm, to me. Yeah, yep, and I'm happy to to get into the specifics of what what people are asking and um, you know where this vaccine came from and how it works and why it's safe and effective and all all of those things. I would Great. love to do that. So why don't we start? Um, how is the how is the vaccine uh, developed and and tested to start mm -hmm. with? Yeah, well, so as you know, fact most vaccines have four phases of testing. The first is a is very much a uh, does this work in an animal model or is it uh, does it even have sort of viability? Uh, phase two is is more of a, a a small scale human test to see if the and that's mostly once it's passed its toxicology tests and isn't going to hurt anybody and um, you know that isn't even uh, testing eff efficacy because it isn't into human trials yet. Mm -hmm. uh, but if it's safe and it isn't toxic, then uh, then there's a small a phase two uh, a clinical trial with 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 humans um, closely monitored to make sure that there's uh, that there are no adverse effects and uh, the trials immediately stopped if there are uh, and then you go into phase three which is um, at that point 
you know, it's been tested widely. Okay, we have tens of thousands of people uh, who have been uh, tested <clears throat> post phase three trials, and uh, that's the point at which the uh, the FDA are, um, can issue a vaccine. Um, so the difference between this vaccine and most is the speed, right? It's operation warp speed. It's called okay. that for a reason. Uh, normal vaccine development is at least a three to five year cycle. Um, and then it goes through federal review, uh, both through a, a vaccine board, as well as the advisory commission on immunization of CDC. Uh, two independent bodies uh, working independently to test, to really review the data from the trials and to make sure that a vaccine is safe. And then, uh, then the vaccine is issued. Now, under warp speed, vaccines are issued under what's called an emergency use authorization, an EUA. And I think, again, this is where some people are saying, well, it's, it was issued you know, before all the testing was done. Well, that's not, that's not the case. What, what warp speed did was it doubled up on some of the steps. Okay. Uh, which really, in a way, put the manufacturers at risk because they had to start producing uh, doses before they had been through their their full phase three testing. Mm -hmm. uh, and if the phase three tests uh, really produced a lot of adverse events, they would have to throw Back millions of dollars, yeah, of of uh, produced doses in the trash. So they were. When you think about the incentive that a manufacturer has to make sure <laughs> that what they're doing is actually going to be usable, yeah, uh, I think this should provide some comfort to people that um, you know it's not in anybody's interest for these vaccines not to work and for them no. to rush them into production. Uh, and then, of course, there's phase four, which happens once the vaccine is out in the in the marketplace, and that is a phase four is really a monitoring and improvement uh, process where you continue to monitor. Um, you know, vaccine side effects, um, any sort of anaphylaxis or allergic reaction, severe allergic reaction, uh, and, and continue to make tweaks and improvements in, in the vaccine. So <clears throat> while warp speed moved these, uh, these processes up in terms of having them happen concurrently rather than sequentially, mm -hmm. it did not skip a single step. I see. Uh, all of the all of the safety testing was done. All of the efficacy testing was done. Okay. Um, and actually, if you want to get into a little bit of what FDA requires, I think this should also, you know, help provide some comfort to people. Yeah, I'll ask that question. I, I will make a comment. Um, it does <laughs> it does um, give me a degree of comfort. I, I recall um, in my studies a decade ago, I was getting a master's in public policy and we were talking about, um, the vaccine process. And I just, you know, thinking back 10 years, t 10 years ago, I thought there's no way all of that could have happened in, 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 in months. You know, I, mm -hmm. I remember learning that it was a year, multi-year process. And that's what I'm yep. sure everybody's heard. So hearing yep. that things weren't skipped, but rather layered, uh, that's, a, yes. that's a point worth saying again and again. So yep. second question, what are, what are the FDA's requirements for the safety and efficacy of a COVID-19 COVID vaccine? Yeah, well, safety of course comes first and it's the most important requirement. Uh, and that is really the first phase uh, of a trial is to make sure that, you know, those toxicology reports come back clean. Uh, but efficacy, FDA really only requires 50% efficacy uh, for uh, the COVID vaccine, really for any vaccine. Hmm. Um, uh, and, and that's 
often because, as you know, vaccines are uh, designed to improve human immunity, natural immunity. Yeah. Our immune systems are amazing mechanisms uh, that uh, in which our, you know, our, our T cells, you know, see a, a sort of invading pathogen and build a defense against it naturally. That's something that uh, we have built into our, our uh, sort of biological processes. And uh, really what the vaccine does is enhance that. It's, uh, it doesn't create anything from scratch. It's, it just enhances it. And so often 50% efficacy uh, from the FDA is, is perfectly adequate. And you may have heard some of the numbers on the flu vaccines, but they say, oh, it's 30% effective or it's 40% effective. Um, and people think, well, that can't be right. That means 70% ineffective, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but I think you have to put it in the context of natural, natural sure. immunity. Sure. And, uh, and really what you're doing is building on the baseline of natural immunity to then get to complete immunity. And so 50% is actually a reasonable uh, uh, amount of efficacy for, for FDA to require. However, the COVID vaccines, both the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna, the two that are out in the marketplace now, mm -hmm. have been shown 94 to 95% efficacy. They're very effective. Wow. Uh, and yeah, so you, we know that they are, firstly, they've passed all the toxicology tests. They're safe uh, and they're extraordinarily effective. Um, so, you know, those trials, I think, should give people a lot of comfort that uh, we've well exceeded FDA's efficacy requirements with these vaccines. Yeah. And there are other vaccines in the pipeline. Jay, Johnson & Johnson mm -hmm. uh, are about to produce one, a, a single-dose vaccine. We can get into do, the, the two-dose question in a minute, but the uh, the J&J &J is producing a single-dose vaccine. It'll probably be sometime in March or April before we see that. Uh, be nice. But that's, yeah, it'll be nice to, to see that. And in fact, the two new variants, the UK and South African variant, are even more transmissible. Um, so does that mean that the vaccine is somehow less effective uh, and therefore needs to be more, uh, have a higher level of efficacy? You know, so I, I, I mean, does that get to it? Yeah, that's that's what I was trying to say. That sounds so much better. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, I think the answer is, you know, we know a lot more about this virus than we did in March when we had our first outbreak in uh, February when we had our first outbreak in a nursing home. Um, but we still don't know uh, everything about it. It's a it's a very squirrely virus. I mean, to you know, to use lay language, it's uh, uh, it affects different kinds of the, different parts of the body. It affects uh, neurologic, their neurologic effects long-term. Sometimes the respiratory effects last well beyond uh, recovery. Um, so it's, it's really important to have a very effective uh, immune response to it and one that lasts. And I think this is where that 94 to 95% efficacy uh, uh, percentage becomes so important. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to have uh, comfort and, and confidence that when you get this vaccine, it's really going to help you from, uh, you know, help you not get sick uh, and really sort of help boost your own natural immunity so that your immune system really understands, uh, okay, here's a COVID virus. We're, we're going to go after it and shut it down. Mm -hmm. Have you been, have you received the vaccine yourself? Not yet. Uh, I'm I'm in the I'm in uh, the phase one C group, which is uh, people over sixty five, 
Uh, phase 1A is nursing home residents, long-term and healthcare workers. Phase 1B is people over 75 and with underlying conditions. And phase 1C, which is the group I'm in, is uh, people over 65. So uh, I'm I'm waiting my turn. I don't want to get in front of the line. Gotcha. Um, I'm, um, but uh, yes, I fully intend to get the vaccine as soon as I can. Good. And how will we know it is safe? And that's kind of the the ultimate question here. How do we know? Yeah. Well, as I say, safety is the most important requirement, and it's assessed uh, through um, you know early trials, through toxicology reports, in before it even gets into human trials. It's uh, it's tested in animal models, uh, and really, what we find is that <clears throat> uh, if you do get side effects, and we should talk about that. Uh, they will usually occur within six weeks of vaccine administration. And FDA requires eight weeks of safety monitoring uh, for any vaccine trial to make sure that it contracts side effects. Uh, So there's uh, a requirement for FDA that at least 3,000 participants in a vaccine trial Mm -hmm. are assessed for safety specifically. Okay. Uh, But when you look at our phase three trials for these two, there's well over 30,000 people who have been tested, 30,000 to 50,000 participants. Wow. <clears throat> and so I think, I think we can be confident that uh, in 30 to 50,000 people, uh, they have not reported um, safety problems or adverse events related to the safety of the vaccine. That is impressive. Uh, so that's 10, times, I, that's 10 times more than, yes. than, we are, than we're typically testing then. Yes, yes. Oh. Hmm. I did not know that. And what side effects, I mean, I mean, obviously we're looking for anything, but is there anything in particular that, that you're looking for uh, in terms of side effects? Yeah, I think it's really important for folks to understand that there, that there are side effects to this vaccine. It's not like getting a flu shot, depending on, on who you are. I think, again, I'm speaking for, you know, folks who work in nursing homes and for the residents who live in them. Uh, but really in the general population as well. When you get a flu shot, you get a sore arm, sometimes a bit of a fever, that's it. Yeah. Uh, 24 hours later, it's passed. <clears throat> uh, this is a little bit more uh, um, uh, severe. I'd say the side effects uh, can range from, again, a sore arm and a slight fever uh, to a lot of muscle aches and pains and uh, you know headaches um, <clears throat> a, a, you know, an extended fever or a sustained fever for, uh, you know, over 24 hours, uh, uh, to some degree, some, um, you know, joint pain as well has been reported. Uh, and, and I think, so the, the, the point I want to make though, with this is that what that says to a patient who's received the vaccine is that the, is that your body is doing its work. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so I think it's, this is a matter of managing expectations. People think I feel bad. And so I must've gotten, you know, the, the vaccine must have given me COVID or must, must be making me sick. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's the wrong response. And, you know, if you go in expecting that you're going to have these side effects and, um, that, the, that they are, you know, essentially all the elements that I talked about, uh, to understand that this is this is your body working. This is your body developing immunity. Um, and normally after a day, um, perhaps two days at the most, uh, you're gonna be right back to normal and you're in, and now you'll be immune. And so I think the, uh, you know, the, the issue here is one, as I say, of really making sure 
that people understand that uh, this is not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's funny to say, you know, feeling some aches and pains is a good thing, but it is. And in, in the case of vaccines, it is. I, I should also say, though, that, uh, you know, these two vaccines, Moderna's and Pfizer's, are two-dose vaccines. Mm -hmm. So they've been trialed uh, that way. And um, the first dose will get you to maybe 50% effectiveness. The second dose gets you all the way up to the 90 95% effectiveness rate. So it's really important to get the second dose. And we're hearing people say, well, how about if I just get one and, and, and then I won't have to feel bad and get a second one and feel bad again. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that's a you know, that's a false economy and sort of avoidance of something that is necessary uh, in order to, to stay healthy. I'm glad you that was my that was my next question, because my brother, uh, he's had his his first vaccination and mm-hmm. his, he's scheduled to get his second one. And that's his line of thinking is I, I may not get my second one. I didn't feel very good. So now I can I can point him to this conversation and say no you you might not have felt great but that was your body um, doing what yep. it was supposed to be doing and and exactly. uh, get the second one you mean yep. you've already got this much invested in the process why not finish it off right yeah yeah and I have to say um, you know we have had some of our docs have reported that in between the first and second dose they've gotten COVID uh, so you know because they're working in the nursing home every day. Uh, they're likely to pick it up. And so there, you know, there was one physician who I spoke to last week who uh, was in between shots. He'd gotten his first shot. He, it it wasn't bad, but then he started feeling, you know, basically Mm -hmm. symptomatic beyond, you know, the vaccine. And he, so he got tested and tested positive. Um, And then, you know, four weeks later, he got his second shot and uh, he was, he was, he's fine now. But, uh, and, and I think, so, you know, the one thing I could say about that scenario is that the I'm sure the first shot gave him some, you know, initial immunity, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but not enough to not enough to shut off, you right. know, his developing symptoms once he contracted the, the disease. Uh, but then, you know, again, the body's responding. So he it, it already had some of the troops in place to, you know, to mm-hmm. fight off the virus once they once he got the second shot. Uh, he, he, he felt fine and I know has, has now tested negative consistently and is doing fine. So I think all the more important for folks to recognize that it's a two dose vaccine. That's how it was trialed. And so that's the only evidence we have, Mm -hmm. you know, and people say, Oh, I don't need the second shot. Uh, there is no evidence that you don't need the second shot. The evidence we have is, uh, it's a two dose, it's a two dose regimen and, uh, really needs to be respected that way. You know, there has been a lot of talk of like in the UK and I know uh, president elect Biden's plan is to release all the first doses right away. Mm -hmm. Uh, And people are saying, well, so I guess you only need one dose. And I I think you have to recognize that the policy approach here is uh, that they wouldn't um, say all the doses, all the first doses should be administered and then just kind of wait until we manufacture more. I think the, the intention here is to say, by the time you get the need for your second dose, we will have manufactured enough doses for the second one. Yeah, and uh, and you know that's that's a very important consideration. So the the policy approach of distributing more vaccines more quickly to more people uh, doesn't mean you don't need the second shot. You do need, you do need the second shot. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so let's see here. I, I want to make sure I didn't miss a question. How will we know it? How will we know that it's safe? 
Yeah, I think we we covered that a little bit um, in in terms of the uh, the trials that have been uh, you know that have been uh, conducted uh, the FDA requirements of you know three thousand versus gotcha. the thirty to fifty thousand. But you know, I think we can also talk a little bit about the independent evaluators uh, because this is another important piece of the process. There are two advisory committees that evaluate safety and effectiveness. Uh, one is the Vaccine and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee, or VERBPAC. Mm -hmm. uh, that's an FDA a committee. It's independent. And the second is what I had mentioned before, CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, or ACIP. Uh, both of those boards evaluate uh, the data and the trials. They monitor the vaccines to ensure safety. Uh, they are not tied to the pharmaceutical companies. They're uh, fully independent government agencies. And uh, they are the people who are on those commissions are experts. They're people from academic institutions, uh, from um, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, laboratories and others that are, you know, that's what they do. And they're vetted you know, carefully to avoid conflicts of interest. Uh, and if they have a conflict of interest, they're not put on the committee. So mm -hmm. I think this is this should also give people, um, you know, comfort that uh, not only are the, are the trials themselves well beyond the FDA requirements in terms of the number of participants, but there's at least there's two independent bodies. And I should say that uh, you know a number of states have also set up their own state level, uh, so third level, really, yeah, vaccine uh, vaccine uh, evaluation boards. Um, I know in California, there's a, there's an independent board that's at the state level that even after these two federal bodies have assessed the vaccine, will look at it themselves. And so, you know, I, I think people should be, you know, comforted that, um, you know, we've really made a, a, a very, very robust effort to ensure the safety of this vaccine. Yeah. And there's so much public scrutiny. Uh, if, if ever there was a situation in which a problem could be spotted. This is it, and so uh, I, I think that I think that uh, people are are being very careful and very cautious. Mm -hmm. um, there, there's just so much scrutiny involved here. Um, yeah, that's just that's just one more one more level of comfort in in my eyes. Yeah. Um, so, what are the types of potential vaccines that may be approved? Um, well, this is an mRNA vaccine, which uh, contains material from the virus that causes COVID. It's, uh, it doesn't contain a live virus. There's no complete virus. These are viral particles that are designed to give cells instructions. It's sort of like a piece of computer code uh, that provides uh, the cells instructions to how to make a protein. Uh, that is unique to the uh, COVID virus. Um, it, this protein is not a virus itself. It, it doesn't build viruses. It doesn't cause infection. And after the cell creates that copy of the protein, uh, the genetic material from the virus actually, uh, from the vaccine, sorry, actually mm -hmm. disappears. It's destroyed. Okay. Um, and that, that happens quickly. That's um, <clears throat> in a matter of, you know, 12 hours to 24 hours. The, uh, the uh, material from the from the vaccine itself uh, washes out, and I think what you're left with then is an immune response uh, that recognizes uh, the virus uh, and prevents it from attaching. Well, that um, too is comforting because there's so much talk of, hey, we're just injecting this 
injecting this disease into our into our bodies and um to know that it leaves in such a short little window there that, it does that too is coming yeah out. i mean think of it uh, you know again the, the closest analog i can come up with is it's a it's like a line of computer code it's uh it's instructing your immune system on how to build a uh, you know a protein that will prevent this vaccine from attaching to a cell uh, and uh, you know blocking that spike protein you know coronavirus has these spike proteins that stick out mm -hmm. and that's what it, that's what attaches and if you can block that attachment process <clears throat> Uh, then essentially you've uh, you've prevented the vaccine from um, you prevented the virus from getting from making you sick. Well, wow. fascinating. Yeah, fascinating. Um, have you? And this is just a sidebar. Have you taken interest in in other vaccines, or is this the first vaccine that you've been so intimately involved with? Well, we um, we have an ongoing campaign to improve uh, flu vaccination, annual flu vaccinations, uh, in our setting of care. Um, we have uh, the you know the sad truth is that um, nursing home staff are kind of the lagging indicator for flu vaccination. Um, most healthcare settings. Um, have over 90% of their healthcare workers vaccinated. In many cases, it's just an expectation of employment. Yeah. Um, uh, but not so much in post-acute long-term care. Nursing home staff are vaccinated at highly variable levels. Sometimes not even 60% of them hmm. are vaccinated. And, and uh, <clears throat> again, uh, Vaccine hesitancy is not restricted to COVID vaccinations. Unfortunately, it goes well beyond COVID. And I, I think, uh, you know, we can get into that discussion, Tyler, uh, if there's time, but it's, uh, you know, there's cultural components here. There's the fact that the uh, nursing home staff, uh, frontline staff in particular, often uh, come from communities of color where there's a very high degree of distrust of uh, vaccines coming from such things as the Tuskegee experiment mm -hmm. uh, where African-American men were injected with syphilis mm -hmm. uh, without being told so and and then studied the disease progression again without their informed consent. Is that in the uh, 70s? It in was in the hospital, 60s, 70s. It was earlier than that, yeah. Oh, okay. uh, but it, but it, it throws a very, very long shadow, yeah. uh, and one that we continue to hear. And then, of course, there's you know social media, mm -hmm. uh, the massive disinformation that's being spread about you know this vaccine. I mentioned people thinking it's a DNA vaccine. It's going to somehow get into your DNA uh, and and alter it in some ways. We've heard. Uh, people tell us, well, you know, I'm going to grow a third arm if I get this vaccine or, <laughs> uh, or, uh, you know, you're microchipping me. There's a, you know, mm -hmm. there's a microchip in there or it's a sterilization program. Yeah. Um, or, you know, we're being guinea pigged here and, and, uh, you know, they're just going to see what happens if we, uh, you know, if we get sick. So, you know, uh, though, when your news sources, when your information sources are not credible mm -hmm. and you have a, a sort of a, fundamental distrust of the vaccine process. Uh, it's you, you get a whole lot of hesitancy around uh, all vaccines and in particular this vaccine because of the degree to which it was developed quickly and is a new technology, yeah. uh, new, to, new to vaccines at least. Uh, and then I think on top of that, um, you know, we know that our frontline staff, um, you know, they're, they're generally poorly paid. They, they have too much to do. They're not, uh, they're not well supported. They distrust their leadership 
uh, and and uh, all of these things I think combine to make the uh, you know sort of the uphill battle of persuading yeah. frontline staff to get vaccinated all the more severe. So we've uh, again it get it get back gets back to your question of why did we develop this toolkit? And a lot of that is because we know how important it is uh, to control. If we're going to control this pandemic, we have to get our staff vaccinated. We have to get them to a level of of immunity. That you know, that's really going to mean uh, that we can comfortably say that the pandemic is is no longer in long-term care. And um, <clears throat> so, you know, a couple of things: the most effective way to persuade a, a frontline staff worker, a certified nursing assistant, to get vaccinated is for her or him to see one of their peers getting vaccinated. Yeah. Um, so, peer leadership, uh, very very important. Uh, but also, you know, clinical leadership. We we have urged our medical directors to get vaccinated very visibly, very publicly, so that their clinical teams see that they're, you know, right right from the top of the clinical team, uh, there's vaccines being developed, de- de- delivered, and you know, everybody's fine. And I think that's probably you know the most important thing. We can do all the education we like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but as you know, information only goes so far. If people have embedded beliefs, how, uh, it's, how it is, is likely. Yeah, go ahead. How is that being received by your clinical leadership? Are, are they all on board, excited to get it? Or do you have some of that mistrust going on at that level as well? Um, well, you know, I can only speak for AMDA members sure. who are 100% in favor of getting vaccinated, doing it publicly, showing leadership on this and, you know, making sure that they're, uh, you know, that they're assisting their clinical teams in sort of overcoming whatever obstacles they have. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would expect to see, and sadly it it affects, um, you know, people of all levels of education up to and including physicians, uh, a certain level of hesitancy, even if it's just sort of let's wait and see, yeah. Um, <clears throat> but to, to me, there's no waiting and seeing. We've got 50,000 people who've already, through the trials, uh, taken this vaccine. And at this point, um, you know, a million doses have been ad- administered without adverse effects. And so I don't think there's any need to wait and see anymore. I think uh, we can we seen. can be. Yeah. yeah, it has. We have waited and we have seen. So I think it's time to pr- <laughs> it's time to proceed. What is um, what is the worst documented um, side effect, adverse effect. Yeah, that's what's called anaphylactic shock. It's a severe allergic reaction. Okay. Um, and, you know, so CDC has provided good guidance around that. I think um, people, uh, when they're getting vaccinated, need to be monitored to see if they're having an allergic reaction. Okay. Um, <clears throat> if they go into an anaphylactic shock, you know, there's epinephrine, uh, that's readily available epipens mm-hmm. um, uh, that can be administered. Uh, if somebody knows that they have a prior history of anaphylaxis with responding to in responding to vaccines, they need to disclose that before they get this vaccine. So that um, it doesn't mean they shouldn't get the vaccine. It means sure. that they that, that the clinical staff need to be prepared uh, for a potential anaphylactic reaction. But to uh, date, but that is. Yes, go ahead. To date, nothing uh, permanent then has been documented. 
There have been one or two anaphylactic reactions that uh, that we've seen both in this country and in other countries. Uh, but again, they're they're not permanent reactions. Okay, yeah, that, that's, <laughs> you, that's you recover. Yeah, 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 you recover from okay. them if it's treated. I mean, you have to be treated. Anaphylactic is anaphylactic shock is absolutely a, a potentially fatal response reaction, but uh, it, it's also very susceptible to treatment. Mm-hmm. Well, another another point of comfort then. Uh, yeah, interesting. Okay. Okay. How long will the vaccine protect us? Yeah, this is a really good point, uh, Tyler. I think uh, people think that once you've got the uh, the vaccine, you're done. Um, immunity is even with the flu vaccine, immunity is not permanent. Um, vaccines, as we know, I'm sorry, viruses, as we know, mutate. Mm-hmm. Uh, this virus is now. Has, has mutated multiple times, but in terms of sort of sustainable mutations that show up uh, with any degree of frequency, there's at least two new variants. Um, so we know that this this uh, this virus is going to continue to mutate. Uh, the vaccine has been shown to be effective against these two new mutations as well, um, but. Uh, the length, the absolute length of immunity is not something that has been shown in broad studies yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, initial trials, initial studies um, show that uh, are, are very promising. Um, you know, eight months immunity, sometimes a year immunity is is reported. Wow. Uh, but that's in the general population. And again, I think you have to remember that our nursing home population are immune compromised, frail elders. Yeah. Uh, they don't have a strong uh, an immune response. And so their level of immunity may not last quite as long. Um, So we anticipate, we don't know this for sure, but we anticipate that this virus will be with us uh, for some time and uh, likely will mutate and will likely require something like the seasonal flu vaccination in order to continue to keep us safe. Yeah. Uh, We don't, again, I'm, I'm speculating here, but knowing kind of what we know now about how this virus operates, and what part of you know how many body systems it affects, uh, and the fact that it has mutated, um, you know, demonstrably, mm-hmm. uh, we're we you know it's predictable that uh, this will become a seasonal issue, just like flu is. Yeah. So, in in your estimation, are masks going to be a mainstay of modern society? I'm not sure about that. I think remember the once you're once we've achieved herd immunity over seventy percent of the population, then I don't think there is as much danger. Um, the virus will still float out there. It's we're not stopping the virus, but mm-hmm. we're stopping it from making us sick. Yeah. Um, you know, again, uh, you know, human biology is an, is amazing, and the degree to which we have already built. Uh, an amazing amount of immunity uh, to a whole variety of pathogens that float constantly in the <laughs> out yeah. in the environment. Uh, this is just going to become another one. Um, however, I, I think until we reach that point, yes, uh, masking, uh, social distancing, and avoiding congregate settings, those are the three strongest tasks, uh, tools we have to keep us safe until we've reached that 70% level. 
Yeah. Um, so people often ask, well, if I got the shot, I don't need the mask, right? And in fact, in some cases, people are saying, you know, that's an incentive to get <laughs> to get vaccinated. Mm-hmm. I, I, I wouldn't encourage people to think that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to achieve a, a wide level of immunization before we can feel safe yeah. uh, taking off the masks and, uh, you know, avoiding crowds and all of the rest of it. Oh, you know, I was going to ask a question that that just popped back up in my mind. The physician mm-hmm. to whom you referred that that uh, received the first dose and then got sick. Um, mm. So the follow up dose still necessary, um, but are, is is the conventional wisdom that we we want to be vaccinated regardless of whether you've you've had COVID nineteen or not, and if so, why? Yes, I think it is uh, important to recognize that even if you've had COVID-19 and recovered from it, that does not mean that you are fully immune. Uh, It means that you have developed some natural immunity, and that's good. Mm -hmm. But the vaccine, remember, vaccines enhance immunity. They don't create it. Um, So your natural immunity is then boosted um, to a point where you can feel comfortable uh, and confident that you're not going to get sick again. Good. Good. Okay. Um, when will we will we be protected after we get the vaccine? So uh, I guess uh, maybe a, a, a different way of saying that is if I get the vaccine tomorrow, um, mm-hmm. how long will it take to kick in? Yeah, well, um, you know, your body begins immediately, which is why you have those reactions. Um, then four weeks later or three weeks later, depending on the vaccine at a minimum, uh, you have the second shot, and then again, another uh, 24 to 48 hour period of side effects. I think after that point, um, <clears throat> you can feel pretty confident if you're feeling healthy, the, the side effects have resolved, and you're basically back to quote unquote normal. Uh, that's the point at which I think you can feel good that uh, your body has developed the immune response that it needs to, um, and you know, you're okay. How long that lasts, again, as I say, is is open to question. We don't have firm data on that yet on a population basis. We have some small trials that are promising. Mm -hmm. Um, But, um, you know, once once everything is resolved from the second shot, I think people can feel comfortable. And and comfortable comfortable means still wearing the masks. I just wanted to uh, confirm. Yes, comfortable that you're not at risk of getting sick. But yes, you can still transmit. Mm-hmm. Um, you can still be a vector of transmission. Um, you can, um, you know, there has there have been very very few cases of people who have have gotten sick, resolved, and then gotten sick again. But they are out there. Yeah. Uh, I don't. I haven't heard of any instances where somebody's been vaccinated and then and then gets sick subsequently. But um, again, this is this is a, a, a different kind of virus. It's. Uh, uh, it's a squirrely virus, and and we, uh, we you know we know that um, uh, it's already mutated twice. I think there may be other mutations, variants uh, coming down the line, and I, I think it's just really important to recognize that we have to get a lot of people vaccinated before we should feel comfortable taking off our masks and you know avoiding being indoors with a lot of people for a long period of time and and so forth. Even I mean I I hate to bring this example up, but the members of Congress who were huddled in a room last week uh, mm-hmm. while Congress was being attacked. Mm-hmm. Um, many of them were choosing not to wear masks. And now we're seeing uh, people testing positive as a result. 
No. At least uh, at least four members of Congress have now tested positive as a direct result of that event. It is so tragic. I I I can't speak to where you live, but in my little my little corner of the country, it is so highly politicized. Yeah. Uh, if you if you wear a mask, you're making a statement. If you're not wearing a mask, you're making a making statement. A, it's yeah, yeah. You know, it, which is it's so unfortunate. I mean, this is basic public health. There's no politics in it at all, and it's a real shame that it has been politicized to the degree it has. Yes, I mean there have uh, there have been lifelong friends, uh, not of mine, but I've witnessed lifelong mm-hmm. friend groups who have now chosen not to be friends uh, mm-hmm. because of because of masks and, yeah. and politicizing yeah. an issue that shouldn't be politicized um, okay. but we've we've had that conversation before uh, well Christopher it is it is it has been a delight to have you on I know that you I know that you're a busy man I don't want to take any more of your time we we have covered in kind of a conversational way AMDA's Q&A's uh, mm-hmm. about the COVID-19 vaccine and um, this this has been very helpful for me, um, and I think it would be helpful Good. for people to read it and and see it for themselves. So if you could maybe point Great. point it out, yeah. If um, if you go to www.paltc.org, uh, we you will see on our front page, our homepage, a link to our vaccine toolkit. It's freely available. You have to register, create an account, but it's uh, it's not. You don't have to be a member of AMDA. You just have to register, and then you'll have full access to all of the information in the toolkit, which, by the way, is dynamic. We're continuing to add to it as we uh, find more resources, either ourselves or through partner organizations. Uh, so it's a it's a valuable resource, and I'd uh, I'd uh, encourage anybody who wants to learn more about the vaccination process to do so. Fabulous. I will. Um, I'm going to make sure to bookmark that page so I can go back and refer to it uh, later. Um, Very good. So thanks again for your time. And um, it's been a delight speaking with you. And uh, have a great day. Yeah. Thanks so much, Tyler. I appreciate it. You betcha. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Wellbeings Podcast. Tune in every Thursday to hear the latest episode. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. As always, thank you so much for listening.